What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Let's go ahead and get down to business. We have Dr. David Whitla with us this morning. He is the church history professor at RPTS and uh, we've only known each other for some months, a couple years maybe, if that. That'd be a strain, though. But you've become a dear friend to me, and I really appreciate what you're doing at RPTS. I love your stuff, your content, uh, your teaching, and I'm very pleased to have you here this morning. So, Dr. Whitlow, please come up and join us. Let us pray together as we begin this morning. Heavenly Father, we do love and adore you. We thank you for your, your great mercies to us in Jesus Christ, and we pray for Dr. Whitla this morning, as well as Barry York and others who will be uh, teaching us, and we ask, Lord, that you would give us your own wisdom, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, sir. Well, I'd like to thank Pastor Matt for his kind invitation. It's good to be with you all this weekend. I want to address you this morning on the subject of the pursuit of joy. The pursuit of joy, which of course should always be something we as Christ's people are pursuing. But there are certain seasons in our lives where the pursuit of joy can be a particular challenge. And so we're looking this morning at a case study uh, of a man who lived a long time ago who struggled with depression. And when we struggle with depression, joy seems to be incredibly elusive. So I want to uh, consider this subject with uh, a Puritan in mind, and I want to begin with uh, a piece of news that perhaps uh, some of you here will be aware of. This year, the Christian publisher, the Banner of Truth, are celebrating the 60th anniversary of a publishing revolution that they launched uh, for the contemporary church, the publication of their first ever Puritan paperback. And uh, this was issued back in 1961. The series now contains 60 volumes, and it basically put back into the hands of the ordinary Christian, a wealth of long-lost pastoral and theological wisdom. And this began a remarkable revival of interest in these 17th century Puritans and a huge wave of reprints that fed the reformed resurgence of the late 20th century, of which many of us here, no doubt, are the beneficiaries. And among the great Puritan manuals for godly living, 
back on the market again. Uh, perhaps their most helpful uh, productions were their masterful treatments of depression, or to use their diagnostic glossary, melancholy. Uh, in fact, the very first Puritan paperback that the banner uh, published was perhaps the best in that category. Um, that's perhaps a, a personal decision. Uh, the book was William Bridge. Uh, 1648, he published A Lifting Up for the Downcast. Uh, and the tender skill with which these physicians of souls handled this perennial problem biblically and pastorally has guaranteed these works a lasting appeal and usefulness. But what is perhaps far more difficult to measure is the extent to which these authors impacted their original readership 400 years ago. Uh, certainly the abundance of titles on depression that appeared in the 17th century and the multiple editions that were uh, published suggest there was a very healthy market. But less accessible are first-hand accounts from the sufferers themselves, recording their own struggles and the help that they personally received from such works. Without a doubt, one of the best ways to enter the mental world of a 17th century Puritan is to read their personal diaries, uh, or in some cases, we even have some autobiographies. Uh, now, there are a few of these that have been published. Many of you will perhaps have read John Bunyan's uh, famous spiritual autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, or perhaps Richard Baxter's uh, autobiography, The Reliquiae Baxteriani. But the vast majority remain largely hidden in archives back in the UK. You just can't get hold of these things. Uh, sometimes they're republished by expensive uh, university publishers or historical society uh, reprints. But these Puritan diaries have attracted a lot of attention from scholars. And so for some reason, I don't know why, uh, less attention from pastors and ordinary Christians. And I, I think that that is a great pity because the great practical lessons they have for all of us uh, are there if we carefully read these intimate accounts of their joys and sorrows. Well, I want to uh, introduce you to one such diary this morning, and it's the spiritual diary uh, of the Scottish Covenanter uh, who gloried in the name of Sir Archibald Johnston of Warriston. Uh, it's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, he's usually, thankfully, abbreviated to simply Warriston, and he lived from 1611 to 1663. What I want to do this morning is I want us to learn from this case study, uh, a case study of the Puritan experience and treatment of depression from this less frequented perspective uh, of the sufferer himself. And I want to let him uh, talk to us in his own words this morning from the diary as he talks about his own pursuit of joy against the backdrop of suffering a lengthy period of acute depression. And as we do so, we will also explore the resolution of this condition by his Puritan pastors and hopefully uh, draw some useful application for today's church. Uh, before we uh, do that, I should perhaps introduce us a little more to the patient 
uh, himself. Uh, it's always a good place to begin. Uh, Warriston was, as some of you may know, one of the most outstanding British statesmen of the troubled 17th century. Uh, he's probably best known as the co-author of the Scottish National Covenant of 1638 and also co-author of the Solemn League and Covenant of 1643. Uh, these were the documents that bound Scotland and then the three British kingdoms uh, to a Puritan religious uniformity. And he has a remarkable career. Uh, it included service on many powerful committees in church and state during the 1640s. Uh, most notably, he served on the Westminster Assembly of Divines and the Committee of Both Kingdoms, which is probably less well known, uh, but they basically ran the civil war for the parliamentarian side. Uh, so by any stretch, this guy had a high-stress job uh, in a time of war, no less. Uh, he also had a very busy family life. Uh, he and his second wife had a total of 18 children, uh, although, uh, sadly, only 12 survived to adulthood. And among his stresses on several occasions, he records in his diary how the family faced financial ruin. And tragically, he watched helplessly as their eldest son apostatized and gradually slid into a state of insanity. Uh, his was a life marked by suffering. And ultimately, he met a rather grim end. He, he collaborated with Oliver Cromwell uh, in the 1650s and was eventually hanged for treason by King Charles II in 1663. He's widely considered one of the first of the Scottish Covenanter martyrs. Well, as much as I'd love to tell you more about his life, that should situate him. And all through this dramatic life, he kept a copious personal diary. And when it was finally published at the turn of the 20th century, readers were at last able to peer more deeply into an intimate portrait of Puritan mental suffering, the pursuit of joy that it generated, and the way Puritans treated such maladies of soul. By his own admission, he was one that had a melancholic temperament, uh, he was, uh, we might say, a glass-half-empty kind of guy. Uh, he suffered with depression really frequently throughout his long life, but for our purposes this morning, we're going to focus on just one particular episode of depression, which lasted for almost two years, uh, between 1632 and 1634. And again, let's let Warriston speak for himself. I want us to let him show us three things. First, we're going to consider the circumstances of depression. Second, we're going to consider the symptoms of depression. And third, the solutions for depression. So the circumstances, the symptoms, and the solutions for depression. Let's begin then with the circumstances in which uh, Warriston suffered. Diary begins with Warriston's account of the courtship and marriage uh, to his first wife, uh, Jean Stewart, in 1632. Now, at the risk of making you all wince and be uncomfortable, uh, she was 14 years of age. 
Uh, Warriston was 21 uh, years of age, and, and that was actually not considered prohibitively uh, young for the period. Uh, as a daughter of a teenage uh, girl, that kind of makes me uh, struggle a little bit, but we've got to remember uh, this was 400 years ago. People died young, and uh, it actually proved to be a very happy match. He writes in the diary, All her friends and thy friends, yea, all indifferent persons hearing of it, thought it the fittest match that ever there was in Edinburgh. But that joy was not to last, because after less than eight months of happy marriage, he records this. At six hours of the morning, on the 12th of June, 1633, it pleased God suddenly for causes known to himself to separate those souls which he had joined out of his love and to take the one to eternal glory and to leave the other plunged in an unspeakable misery. Sudden death of his young teenage bride was understandably shattering to Warriston. And the next 15 months, he did little else but speak in his diary about this unspeakable misery with remarkable eloquence. Uh, he didn't really fully emerge from the Depression until his second marriage to Helen Hay in 1634, after which uh, he became engrossed in the happy distractions of a new law career uh, and a new home. So these then are the circumstances of the Depression. But secondly, the symptoms of depression uh, are explained very clearly in the diary. How does this Scottish Puritan describe the experience of depression? Well, he immediately and instinctively retired himself from the world and gave himself to the spiritual disciplines of Bible study and prayer and fasting, spending hours on end in solitary places. He, he mentions his sister's bedroom and a quiet alleyway outside his home, walking in the fields, finding barns to pray in when it was raining, uh, and so forth. And when he was in these solitary places, uh, he would cry out audibly, unburdening his feelings to the Lord. Just listen to this excerpt, uh, which like most of these entries, you'll notice they're written in the second person as if he was speaking to himself. On Wednesday morning, thou raised cries out of thy heart, and then shouting with thy voice, God's mercy, God's mercy, and that with many tears, for thou thought that God's hand was as yet lying heavy upon thee, and therefore pitifully looking and wailing unto God as unto thy Father. Warriston is, is renowned among the Puritans for the duration and the intensity of his devotions. One of his contemporaries remarked that in prayer he was the most stayed and swallowed up in the work of any man of his time. The duration of his devotions was due in part to his temperamental intensity. This guy was type A out the window, okay? And you, you can't read his diary without seeing that. But he was also a chronic insomniac. Uh, his nephew, uh, Gilbert Burnett, a famous historian, had this to say. He could seldom sleep above three hours in the 24. I um, wonder if any of you can identify with that. Uh, and he went into very high notions of lengthened devotions. Well, as you can perhaps imagine, 
Warriston's secluded lifestyle began to cross a line uh, into something more akin to a monastic asceticism. And his reclusive lifestyle began to really worry uh, his family members. They were concerned that this seclusion was beginning to fuel uh, his melancholy. And his intense spiritual exercises were often characterized uh, by a certain uh, self-pity and morbid introspection. For example, although evidently enjoying a certain degree of personal uh, assurance of his salvation, Warriston clearly toiled under an oppressive sense of personal sin and guilt relating to God in terms of a covenant of works rather than a covenant of grace. We might say he had a touch of the legalist about him. And this is perhaps most poignantly exhibited in routinely blaming himself for the loss of his wife, which he interpreted as God's judgment for personal sin. He wrote this, I consider my impenitency, security, unthankfulness for, and abuse of blessing. Get this, forcing the Lord, seeing no other thing would wake me up, to change his former love unto present wrath, and so deprive me of all worldly contentments and oppress me with all miscontentments. He also clearly uh, understood there to be uh, an element of spiritual warfare in this depression. This might tie in well with Professor Evans' uh, session last night. He often in the diary talks about how uh, the devil robbed him of any hope of deliverance from the darkness. Quote, the devil in my greatest griefs cast ever in my teeth that the, my best days were gone that I would never see the sunshine of God's outward providences to me again, that I would never find worldly contentment again, that nothing did abide in me in the rest of my life but miseries, temptations, afflictions, crosses, curses. Now, despite all of this, there remains in the diary a sense of the overruling providence of a sovereign God. He says, seeing God will have me humbled and comfortless, humbled shall I be, and desire and delight to be so, and to remain such ever until he change his mind and call me up out of this bottomless dungeon. So while there is a faith-filled self-humbling under the chastening rod, and that is no doubt commendable. We need to be humbled when the Lord chastens us. You cannot help but detect in the diary a sad sense of hopeless resignation to the point of almost fatalism. And it's most evident with Warriston's frank account of his suicidal ideation, or at least a morbid preoccupation with death. Quote, Remember, O soul, on Sunday night, how thy sleep was interrupted by the thought and desire of death, and how thou dreamed thereof. And I think it's here that we see some of his most intense language of 
of psychological pain. He says that I may go joyfully and cheerfully unto the Lord as from misery unto felicity and from a sinful death for what is my present life but a death to me unto a blessed life. That's depression. What is my life but a death to me? Lord, wouldn't it be better just to take me to glory? That's what he's saying. Now, his conscience may have prevented him from taking his own life, but it didn't stop him begging God to do him the favor. This is brutally honest stuff from a man in the depths. And we can think of perhaps biblical parallels. You think of Elijah under the juniper tree, uh, for example. But the self-pity of this bereaved widower of Edinburgh is hardly an example worthy of emulation uh, when it comes to this kind of despair. Well, I realize this is all pretty depressing stuff. Um, I, I got up early on Saturday morning, and I had a nice breakfast, and here I am listening to this man in the depths of despair. Well, this glimpse, and it's just a glimpse into the troubled mind of this uh, depressed man, it reveals the depths to which the 17th century Puritans could fall uh, in their struggle with depression. And it was triggered, of course, by the tragic death of his wife. Uh, and the line between grief and, and depression is extremely uh, thin. But while the circumstances of the depression were doubtless understandable, many of Warriston's symptoms were not helped by his self-opposed seclusion, his morbid introspection, and this works-driven orientation in his relationship with God. And perhaps we might say little wonder that this dark valley, which he trod for almost two years, was further marked uh, by the perils of satanic suggestion and even suicidal ideation. Neither of these, of course, are new phenomena uh, encountered by today's pastors as we deal with tender-hearted saints. And I think there's a lesson there that we need to take to heart this morning. This recent resurgence of interest in the Puritans is certainly most welcome. I mean, I'm a great cheerleader for this, okay? This is good stuff. But I think that perhaps it has sometimes resulted in an unhelpful kind of hero worship that sets these theological giants up on pedestals as if they were not men of like passions with us. And you know how this is. We read their great theological treatises. We're transported by them to the heavenly realms by their powerful godly rhetoric. But Warriston's case study reminds us that their feet were still firmly on the ground. They were men and women just like us, mired in the mud of a broken and messed up world. And perhaps it's because they were so afflicted with the trials of life that are common to man that they are able to minister so effectively to our souls by their writings. And that's something to keep in mind as we move on now from this dark valley to consider thirdly what steps Warriston took to extricate himself from the shadow of this dark valley. His diary doesn't just give us a window uh, into uh, how early modern Scottish Puritans experienced and expressed the mental suffering of depression. It also provides a window into how it was treated, how they pursued joy amidst the darkness and how we can as well. So circumstances of depression, the symptoms of depression, and now the rest of our time, I want us to think about the solutions, the solutions to depression. 
And despite the several moments of almost uh, despairing resignation that this poor man experienced on his journey, the diary reveals that he was also earnestly engaged in spiritual and practical means, uh, which, with God's blessing, he expected would bring deliverance. And I want to give you, and we'll do it quickly, seven solutions, okay? Seven solutions to depression from this diary. Seven ways that Warriston pursued joy. Here's solution number one. The pursuit of joy through preaching. The pursuit of joy through preaching. You cannot uh, read this diary without seeing that Warriston prioritized preaching above all the means of grace. He attended every sermon he possibly could. And in Edinburgh in the 1630s, uh, there was a lot of choice, okay? Uh, virtually every day, there was some great name whose commentary you probably have on your shelf, right? And, oh, he's giving the three o'clock this afternoon, and Warriston would be there, copiously making notes, trying to find comfort in the darkness. So he would listen to the voice of God speaking into his depression, and he noted over and over again how the text the man preached was so providentially suited to his mental condition. Here's an example. He says, in the Greyfriars Kirk, I heard Mr. James Fairley on Psalm 32:11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice ye righteous and shout for joy all ye that are upright in heart. Was not this a sweet text, and as it were appointed by God's special providence for the augmenting and confirming my morning's comforts? He'd just come from his quiet time, and God had spoken to him there. He goes to the church, and God drives the message home by the preaching. And nor was the preaching of the Psalms the only source of comfort and renewed strength. Warriston also in, in the diary uh, frequently found the singing of the Psalms uh, in private, family, and public worship to be a special balm. Uh, the diary is, is full of citations from the Scottish metrical Psalter of 1564, uh, which, which he interestingly seems to have committed to memory. Uh, it's remarkable how he, he, he keeps just writing these things down with his own little Scottish spin, right, uh, that makes it suggest he, he had it memorized. Here's an excerpt. Then by God's providence, the people were singing the 30th Psalm. And when we came to the fifth verse, though grips of grief and pangs full sore shall lodge with me all night, the Lord to joy shall us restore before the day be light. Oh, then my heart melted again, ever repeating those two words, grips of grief and pangs full sore, and praying the Lord to keep his promise. So in the pursuit of joy and depression, Warriston found the word to be paramount. And as we've seen already, although he, he poured over the word in his personal devotions, it was particularly in this corporate context that the word especially seemed to minister to him, the word preached uh, and even the word sung. But there was also in this context, secondly, the pursuit of joy through the Lord's Supper the pursuit of joy through the Lord's Supper. Warriston availed himself of, uh, we might say, a sacramental antidote to his depression. Uh, you may know that in the Scottish Presbyterian tradition, they had uh, sacramental seasons. 
Uh, you didn't just come and, oh, it's the Lord's Supper this morning. Uh, these were big occasions where you'd have guest preachers and maybe five sermons uh, before coming to the table. And what you find in the diary is Warriston went to as many communion seasons as he possibly could. He'd find out where they were going on, and he'd go there. He wanted to be at the table. Now, while these were usually occasions of peculiar solemnity and grief over the sins he felt he was being chastened for, he also mentions in the diary moments of particularly close communion with Christ that brought him a few moments of pure joy in the midst of his dark valley. For example, a communion at the Kirkcaldy Church on 4th of August, 1633, seems to have been a particularly important milestone that he remembered in his deliverance from his depression. He writes this, At the table, he made me most sensible of his present particular presence. He wonderfully reduced all the doubts of these things which the devil had cast in my mind. Let us yet praise the Lord even the more that is so indulgent as to offer such pearls to us who, like brutish swine, reject them, misesteem them, and will not so much as thank him for his offer. So rather than letting the depression keep him back from the Lord's table, it was kind of a magnet to the table. He loved to come and to commune with Christ uh, at the sacrament because here he was reminded of gospel promises in a very tangible way. That brings us to solution number three, the pursuit of joy through pastoral counseling. The pursuit of joy through pastoral counseling. After the service was over, uh, Orson didn't just sort of scuttle off home as quickly as possible. He stuck around for fellowship. And he particularly would be found at the, uh, at the pastor's door. Pastor, could I have a word, uh, is what he would do. And uh, as he would talk to the, pa the pastors, they would counsel him. He writes, after sermon, I had a comfortable discourse with Mr. Archibald Scaldy about the God's manner of dealing with me, both in my dejections and in my comfort. Here's a serious Christian conversation after church. It's not the kind of idle chit-chat about the game or whatever that we, we often fall into. He wants to talk about his soul. And here is the soul physician that God's appointed to help him as he talks through his dejections. And it was struggling lay people like Warriston that filled the casebooks of Puritan pastors and enabled them to write those profound manuals uh, that we find in the Puritan paperback series. Among Warriston's pastoral counselors was David Dixon, uh, best known today probably for his commentaries. But actually, Dixon's most famous work in his generation was an enormous counseling manual, the Therapeutica Sacra, published in 1664. And it's a big, huge monster of a book. And it's absolutely packed with cases of conscience that echo Warriston. Warriston was probably his best customer, we might say. And if you read through that, it's like, oh, Warriston, 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 Warriston. And pastors, you know, we, we all have people like that in our congregations. You could write a book uh, about them. And, and perhaps we're tempted to say, oh, here's pastor, it's me again. But you know what? Maybe the Lord is using them to, to sharpen our skills, to enable us to minister to others. Uh, and that certainly, I think, is the case here with, uh, with Warriston and, and, and Dixon. 
And that's, of course, another uh, key part of the antidote to Warriston's depression that I think we need to learn from. Solution number four is the pursuit of joy through the right Christian books. The right, underline, the right Christian uh, books. Uh, By 1632, there were already a great many Puritan titles dealing with depression on the market, and uh, Warriston seems to have read all of them. Uh, It's amazing how many books you find in the diary. Um, And uh, he found them a great help. And he built this personal library of solid devotional literature. The vast majority were by English Puritans, but you also find their continental reform divines and Lutherans as well. And we might say that his bookshelf uh, became a kind of spiritual medicine cabinet, right? He would go there, he would take down off the shelf uh, a reading, and he would read and find consolation. And these works provided biblical counseling and also just a welcome distraction, a welcome distraction or diversion from his troubled mind. Uh, You often find uh, quotes like this, Hereupon I resolve to divert my mind by my book. It may not sound very spiritual, but he's, he's, he's in the grip of the depression. I'm going to divert my mind with my book until the Lord changes my present estate. Now, it's interesting that while the ready availability of Puritan books like these was a blessing to this struggling widower, when we examine his reading habits more closely, we learn that it's not simply the reading of Christian books that are a means of grace, but a discerning reading of them. In other words, you need to read the right Christian books. And I say that because his initial selection of devotional literature seems to have actually fueled his depression. Some of his reading picks made him brood on the subject of death and dying and their introspective catalogs of sins. Especially for a man of his temperament, that wasn't a smart move. Okay, And it quickly became an obsession for him. Just let me share for a minute, humor me here. Listen to some of the Puritan titles that he would while away the hours reading, okay? William Struther, A Resolution for Death, 1628. Edward Reynolds, The Sinfulness of Sin, 1631. And my personal favorite is Nicholas Byfield. I'll take a deep breath for this one. A catalog of sins showing how a Christian may find out the evils he must take notice of in his repentance, 1633. Uh, This isn't exactly the happiest of bedtime reading. And even though they may well fit the, uh, the title of solid Christian literature, perhaps not the wisest choices. Now, I'm happy to report this morning that there were others on his shelf uh, which had the opposite effect. And these were Puritan books that wisely directed him away from this introspective preoccupation with sin to focus instead on the glory of Christ and the gospel, which is, of course, essential for us to rise above these dark valleys. Books that he read that fell into this category included Robert Bolton's book, Discourse on the True State of Happiness. There's a better title, 1612. Or Bolton's Treatise of Comforting Afflicted Consciences, 1631. Or Phineas Fletcher's Joy in Tribulation or Consolations for the Afflicted Spirits, 
1632, and uh, Henry Scudder's classic work, The Christian's Daily Walk in Holy Security and Peace, 1628. And these books really helped him come uh, to a turning point in his pursuit of joy. Just listen to this. He says this, By God's providence, I read all that day a most comfortable discourse in Bolton's directions, desiring every true-hearted Nathaniel to rejoice evermore in the Lord his God and not to humor the devil by a sad, pensive, melancholic life. Every line seemed written only to me in my present Course. Have you ever had that experience? It's like, Bob, it's like this guy wrote this book just for me. That was his experience. And it was this discerning reading of Puritan counseling books that helped bring relief to his depression by helping him regain a balanced spiritual focus. And that's the fifth solution, and I would say probably the most important of all of them, the pursuit of joy through refocusing on Christ. The pursuit of joy by refocusing on Christ. Friends, All of this is instructive for those of us who suffer from depression or those of us who minister to people who suffer with depression. Warriston learned to refocus his vision off his depression and onto Christ. And this Christward look as opposed to a predominantly introspective focus, was vital to his spiritual journey out of the darkness. And that's the way it will be for us when we find ourselves in this dark place. You see, friends, sometimes the pursuit of joy can become an idol to us. Our chief end in our depression becomes hunting down that elusive feeling of joy. And instead, Warriston found that if you make the pursuit of Christ your chief end, the joy will find you. You see? And so I perhaps shouldn't have labeled my lecture the way I did, the pursuit of joy. It should be the title of the conference, the pursuit of Christ. Because it's in the pursuit of Christ that we are transported out of the mire of our lives by looking to him and bringing our griefs into their proper proportion. Warriston writes, Then God admirably began to comfort thee by spreading the sense of his love in the death of Christ abroad in thy heart. Thy joy in the mercies of God should exceed thy grief for thy present miseries. Thou could not question the power of God nor doubt of his love which the Father proved in not sparing his only begotten Son and the Son proved to thee in shedding his own heart blood for thee. What's Warriston doing? He's seeing his sufferings in the context of God's gospel love and providential plan and that enables him to view his life's troubles in a very different light he learned in short that God had an overarching plan for him which rendered his sufferings purposeful and not pointless isn't that what we need when we're in depression he goes on in the diary and says quote God let me see 
that his appearing wrath in my wife's death was in fact a real love to me. Yea, a greater mercy unto me appeared therein than ever I saw before in anything that had befallen me. For thereby I saw God bringing me in within the compass of the promises, both of this life and of the life to come, which are contained in the gospel. What a thing to say. He's lost his, you know, his high school sweetheart bride, and he can now see it in a different light. The Lord had a purpose for me in this. This was actually an expression of his, his love to me in a mysterious way. And he discovered that when you become transfixed by God's indescribable love to you in the gospel, the circumstantial sources of depression that formerly transfixed you recede back into their proper proportion and the soul ceases to be ruled by them. All of these solutions that we've looked at have a spiritual, a spiritual focus, but we need to note also before we close that there are practical measures that he takes as well. And these are just common sense things. So I have to add solution six, the pursuit of joy through Christian fellowship. A community played a very important role in Warriston's pursuit of joy. Uh, despite the secluded life of his self-appointed devotional cloister, at the strong advice of his family, he increasingly availed himself uh, of the support of his circle of friends. He says, Then God moved me extraordinarily by this meditation, that affliction was the trial of affection, that now my mother and all my friends strived for to prove compassionate and affectionate unto me. It would be a mistake, friends, to think that the Puritan's treatment of melancholy was exclusively a spiritual exercise. On the contrary, in Warrison's diary, we find lots of examples of common sense practical solutions to a life of morbid introspection, including things like better sleep, better exercise, and better diet. In one entry, he summed it up well by writing, I saw my mind could not be always bent on religious exercises, but fainted if it were not sometimes diverted by worldly occasions. That's such an important reminder. I think we think these Puritans had their heads in the clouds all the time, right? Uh, they're frequently stereotyped as having this contemplative, melancholic disposition. But the life of the Puritan was, it was a family life. It was a public life. And yes, appropriate diversions and care of the Constitution played a role in his recovery as well. And that's why the seventh solution uh, is so important, and that is the pursuit of joy through vocation, through vocation. So crippling had his depression been that for the better part of two years, he had not been able to work. Maybe you know people like that. He hadn't been able to work. And a final corner was turned in the saga in the late summer of 1633, when he became convinced strongly that he needed to pursue the vocational calling that God had set before him. And from this point on, there is a more constructive and positive tone in the diary. He enjoyed a new motivation. He says, seeing now God sends life, I might be confident that he has some work to do with me yet for his glory, the good of his servants, and my own good. He's looking now to the good of others and not just uh, looking into himself. And with this motivation, he hit the books again. He passed the bar, began a very successful legal practice, and continued to have one of the most extraordinary legal careers in British 
history. There is life uh, beyond depression. God continued to bless him, restored to him the years the locusts had eaten. Uh, the courtship and marriage uh, to his second wife, Helen Hay, uh, brought healing uh, to the grief of his bereavement. And on the night of his betrothal, uh, he wrote this. On a twelfth day, my first matrimonial knot was loosed, and on a twelfth day, it was fastened again. That night, we praised God for his providence. Well, I wonder if I could, just in the last five minutes, to give a couple of very brief concluding observations here. We've uh, looked this morning at the circumstances and the symptoms and the solutions uh, for uh, depression by using this case study. And I think all that we've looked at today is very applicable, very applicable uh, to our own lives as well. I'm sure any pastor here could say this is a textbook case. This is classic. This is nothing new. The malady of melancholy continues to afflict believers. And the spiritual and practical methodologies employed by these 17th century Puritan pastors are still applicable today. And the value of their counseling manuals are thus of enduring worth as tools in the pastor's counseling toolbox. Now, we've thought briefly this morning about the pursuit of joy through preaching, the Lord's Supper, pastoral counseling, the right Christian books, refocusing on Christ, Christian fellowship, and vocation. And we've done all of it through the diary of a guy that died over 350 years ago. The republication of Puritan counseling manuals like the Puritan paperbacks is to be commended. Long may it continue. But without narratives like Warriston's, we really are only hearing one side of the counseling conversation. And there are valuable lessons to be learned from the notebook of the patient as well as the physician. I've argued from this case study, for instance, that the Christian's use of these manuals should be discerning. While the condition of depression remains the same, and our human nature remains the same, Warriston's case study suggests that not every Puritan title may have the same value for every Christian at every moment of crisis. A wise pastor or counselor who is well acquainted with a wide array of useful resources for hurting souls will recommend the right book for the right case, just as a competent doctor will prescribe the best medicine according to the ailment. So a dose of Byfield's catalog of sins may be just the thing for a hard-hearted person in the pews, but probably not the best thing for a bruised reed like Warriston. And in that case, I'd recommend Dr. Sibb's book of that title, The Bruised Reed. That might be just what the doctor ordered instead. And finally, let me say this. This case study, I think, is a reminder of why we need Christian biography. We need Christian biography, friends. It's good for us to know that the Christian heroes of the past, even martyrs like Warriston, had feet of clay just like ours. And while the disarming frankness of their spiritual diaries may make us occasionally wince, they are a very useful antidote for hagiography, that unhealthy veneration of saints. And they may prove a timely remedy for our own struggles, even though we're separated by nearly four centuries. We possess the same fallen nature. We have the same Lord. We have the same means of grace. 
And what does that mean? It means we have everything that we need to successfully pursue joy. Thank you very much. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.